You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Today, I have the honor of interviewing the man that Bloomberg and Business Week named the top 50 most powerful people in real estate. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Doug Duncan is Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Fannie Mae, where he's responsible for forecasts and analysis of the economy and the housing and mortgage markets. Prior to joining Fannie Mae, Duncan was Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at the Mortgage Bankers Association, and he's here with us today on The Real Well Show. Well, Doug, welcome back to The Real Well Show. It's such an honor to have you back. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. That, that's a big deal for an economist to get invited back. You know? <laughs> Well, last year it was a lot of fun because we took a look at your forecast and then what really happened and we get to do that again, look at your forecast from last year and what really happened. And let's see, did you forecast uh, some kind of black swan event last year? Oh yeah, we were all over the COVID in January. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a shocker. Uh, and um, obviously things didn't turn out anywhere close to what anyone thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say that the recovery of the economy has been stronger than what people thought once it did hit. Yeah, uh, and we were ahead of the curve on that. Um, we um, we beat the average, I would say, in the forecast on that. But the housing piece, um, we were way out on the housing piece. So in April, so a month into the most serious part of the of the uh, COVID, the board of directors at Fannie asked me. What, how far our house price is going to fall. And uh, I said, well, actually, they're going to rise. And they mm -hmm. really wanted an explanation of that. <laughs> That's where the value of our consumer survey comes in. We, since June of 2010, we've been surveying 1,000 households a month. When we did the March and April surveys, what you could see was people who owned a home, because we could divide it by that, people who owned a home that they could have listed for sale were much more concerned and pessimistic than people who could be first-time homeowners when they saw the level of interest rates and they had secure salaried jobs. So we said, look, the number of sales are going to fall in the spring buying season, but supply is going to fall further than demand and prices are going to go up. They just they didn't believe it, but it turned out to be absolutely true. Uh, and so that's one of those insights into people's behavior and attitude, which has been really important in understanding where the economy is going to go. Absolutely. And you came out with your 2020, 2021 forecast and recently revised it upward. So let's talk about that and why. Yeah, you starting, bet. Starting with uh, GDP. Yeah, we, um, uh, the, the story in 2020 was the virus. The story in 2021 is the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So if the vaccine is broadly distributed, is effective, and is resilient, and there I'm talking about if other mutations of the virus come, is the vaccine still effective, still resilient? That's what's going to bring people out uh, into the economy. They have their savings rate is 50% above the long-term average savings rate. So they've got savings, even if they're not evenly distributed across all income groups. Stock prices are up strongly. 
So if, if you have a stock portfolio, you've got wealth you can tap on there and home equity because of this rise in house prices. So consumers actually have significant resources to draw on when they become confident to get out into the economy and be active. So our forecast suggests that will happen about mid-year. Now, this is something we've never done before, so we're watching the logistics. If you take the current pace at which the vaccines are being distributed and simply do a linear trend, it gets you somewhere to the July-August timeframe in which that plus herd immunity probably makes everybody feel safe. If you believe there will be some efficiencies as we learn about this distribution, then maybe it's June. So that might, that's a, a way to think about the risk related to that. Now, not everyone will go out the day somebody says uh, uh, it's safe. Some people are like, well, it might be, but uh, I'm going to wait and see if it turns out to be true, right? Yeah. So our assumption mid-year says in the second half of the year, people will come out, whether it's third quarter, fourth quarter. And we think with all that resource base that they've got, that we may see second half annualized growth north of 6%, wow. which would get about 5% for the full year. So that's a pretty good year. And that's we, amazing. And for housing, we also don't see interest rates going very far because spreads have been very wide and profits very strong in 2020. They're coming down and the 10-year treasury is coming up a little bit, but lenders can give up some of that profit and still keep the business flowing. And that will hold mortgage rates pretty close to where they are today. That means for housing, another good year. That's incredible. That's maybe not what we thought, like you said, nine months ago. Well, you you did think so. So then the big question is if people start going out, in in the summer when things are warm and we're feeling more confident does that mean people will be moving back to the cities and moving out of the suburbs or is the trend that we're we're seeing um going to continue great question uh and the the, i believe the proper answer is we don't know Mm -hmm. but there are some clues so one of the things that we we can track the the address of a person who is making a loan application for a property at a different address because you have to fill out all this paperwork. So we know where you're living. We know where you would like to live. So we can actually track migration through the mortgage application process. Hmm. So we've got charts that show, no question, New York, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, a number of the cities that have concentrated urban cores saw a significant rise in people moving away from density. So we we know which zip code that address is in and we can know what the density of population there is. We know the zip code that they're moving to and the density of population there. Put it on a chart, it's very clear. People were moving away from from density. Now, the last couple of months before the the early fall months, those lines started reversing themselves, meaning that activity was slowing. Then the virus picked up again, then that activity picked up a little more. What I take from that is there are amenities in densely populated areas which are desirable, not to mention employment and proximity (laughs) to your employment being one of them, uh, and 
there are gains in productivity from working in close proximity to people. I know you're in California, you spend time in Silicon Valley, all the startups will tell you, you gotta have a small group of people working intensively together over a, a significant time period to explore an idea. That's true in the big cities too, with other kinds of business. So uh, I'm a skeptic about whether there will be a permanent shift away from the city. I do believe that there will be a reduction in the amount of time each worker spends there. Because we have learned you can do some things from home. And houses are cheaper further away from the city core. And if you only have to commute three days a week versus five, you might go that extra three, four, five miles and get that less expensive house. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's already there because it's owned by a boomer and they had four bedrooms. You may only have one child, but if two of you have to work at home part of the week, you might need two offices. Mm-hmm. So two of those bedrooms might get converted to offices. So a number of interesting dynamics at work. Fascinating. And then, of course, we know one of the biggest issues that housing is facing is is not a foreclosure crisis at all. It's a lack of inventory uh, on the market. So if people are fearing, feeling more confident, maybe that means they're more confident next summer to list their houses and move. Uh, do you see the inventory situation loosening up a bit in the summer and having more on the market or not so much? We, we do. Sorry, the um, yes, we do see um, a, a response. Going back to what I said earlier about the survey of existing homeowners who were more concerned about the virus. Of course, on average, existing homeowners are older than first-time home buyers. Mm-hmm. And so there is a recognition that the virus has greater risks for older people. So the more of that fear that you dispel, the higher the probability that some of those people who wanted to move but were fearful of the virus will actually now list their house and, and that will increase supply. Of course, we have a couple of other things working here. One is over time, there is a, if the economy does strengthen, that will push base interest rates up. At the margin, that will price a few people who would be buyers out. So demand pace of growth slows. Um, we do have a bunch of people that are in forbearances. Some of those will not recover their economic strength and be able to retain that house. And so some of those loans will go through either three foreclosure sales or foreclosures. That will add a little bit to the supply side. And of course, builders are building as fast as they can. So whereas house prices increased about 10% in 2020, we think maybe about half that or 5% in 2021 because of the combination of those factors. So prices would still rise, there'd still be demand, but it would get closer to equilibrium? That's, that's correct, that's okay. correct. Um, and uh, long-term average um, price, nominal price appreciation, that is including inflation, uh, going all the way back to World War II is about three and three quarters percent. Um, if you take out 3% inflation, you get to about three quarters of, I'm about a quarter, let me do my math here. <laughs> three quarters of 1% uh, inflation adjusted house price appreciation. So uh, three and three quarters with inflation, four and a half to 5% still stronger than the, the long-term average. So that's still strong price appreciation. It's just closer to the long-term average. 
So do you see any kind of risk of oversupply at some point? I mean, I, I believe, it's obviously not confirmed yet, but I believe that there was some talk that the Biden administration would um, would put some money towards building more affordable housing. We know lots of builders are are coming in trying to keep up with demand. Is there the concern that things might flip and we'll have too much supply at some point? Um, not immediately, but you said at some point. That's certainly a possibility. The thing I've been thinking about um, is the the growth of uh, institutional investor money in single family rentals, along with builders who are building a portion of developments for sale to investors uh, who will then rent them out. Now, part of the returns to those institutional investors is ca the cash flow return but part of it is the capital gain return as well. So let's suppose that the existing home supply picks up and goes back to something close to normal, then the pace of price appreciation will slow and question what the return targets are for those institutional investors and the impact on price of the additional new rental properties being put into that space, whether or not there would be a point at which some of those institutional investors would say, well, doesn't look like we're gonna get a return targets and start putting that, those properties on the market. That's, a, that's a, a place that you could see in select markets, some price compression um, because of the supply side finally catching up and overtaking the demand side of that market. But it, it's not here today. Um, mm -hmm. And it probably, the, the demographic bulge in the millennials probably suggest that's a fear maybe two, three, four years further out, uh, but not a high fear even at that. Well, and that's a really great point about the the demographics. When you look at the uh, millennials, I think the largest group of the millennials is around 28. I could be wrong about that, but that there would be a buying wave um, once they reach the typical first-time home buyer age of 31, at least it has been in the past. So do you see that as a possibility that we will see more demand for these millennials as they start to form their families and and uh, and, and want to buy homes like other generations have done? Do you, do you see that there being strong demand in like three years from now? Yeah, I think we're still uh, uh, at or around the peak of that group. So they're and and they're a very large group, the largest population group we've ever had. So there's still going to be strong demand from that group for uh, at least the next two, three, four years for sure. So uh, I, uh, other than interest rate shocks or some employment shock, I, I see housing as going to be a pretty good place to be uh, for a while. Um, the, there has been some concern about uh, the boomers and if the boomers move out, is that gonna generate some uh, shock? Well, the, they've got even more incentive today to remain in place than what they had been expressing for the last decade that they wanna age in place. Of course, healthcare has, has extended life. So that, uh, uh, the fear on that side keeps push, being pushed out into the future further. I think the leading edge of the boomers is now, I might get this wrong, 73 maybe. One thing that is notable is that uh, I, I believe the data are that 
between the ages of 65 and 75, the incidence of disability increases by a factor of six. What that means is expenditures on adaptation of those houses to be more age friendly. So it's things like replacing door knobs with handles, uh, having places that you can roll a wheelchair directly in and not have to go up uh, steps, um, uh, showers which have uh, safety bars and things like that. There's, a, I think, six or eight adaptations that a typical house needs for that uh, aging person to remain in place. I think you'll see expenditures on that and they'll continue to age in place, which means you won't get that supply glut for some time that would drive price down. Yeah, it's so fascinating how yeah, I, I've been in the media most of my life. I got my degree in broadcasting and, uh, you know, sometimes these articles just take headline news and get more play than say yours, somebody who's you know been in the industry. But we, you know, we saw that headline that baby boomers were going to be you know, giving up all these millions of homes, there'd be a glut of inventory and that there'd be a glut of inventory from all these forbearances. And really that's that's just not the case. I mean, so many of those forbearances have been extended and most likely will turn into loan modifications, don't you think, versus foreclosures? That's right. Uh, I think the, uh, in the initial stages, the share of loans that went into forbearance was about 8%. That's now down to 5%. And we have data, we surveyed people and said, why did you take a forbearance? about 50% of them took it as a precaution. Mm -hmm. They were still paying, wasn't a problem. It was cheap, easy to do. So let's take it as an insurance policy. Then when they saw how things played out, they didn't need it, they extinguished it. So now it's something like less than 5%. Some of them are still paying fully on time or partially on time. Those are going to be candidates. Um, some of them won't even need a restructuring. Some of them will be candidates for restructuring. And that's that's the uh, economically optimal way to solve the problem is to keep the family in the house and restructure the obligation. But there'll be some that won't be able to make that. And if they have equity, pre-foreclosure sale, let's them escape fulfilling their obligations, taking a little equity to relocate. And then there'll be some that will go through the foreclosure process. So it will be a distribution of things, but we don't see this as some sort of a wave that engulfs the, uh, the uh, mortgage business as a whole. You know, as you know, there's certain cities that have uh, been hit harder by the pandemic than others. Uh, does your research show which areas are doing better and where uh, more people are able to afford properties versus other areas? Well, one of the, uh, there's a couple of questions uh, buried there. One is, <laughs> in terms of general economic activity, what, uh, what's the difference geographically across the country? Mm -hmm. as has been politically uh, sort of a flashpoint, there's no question that those geographic areas which had less severe lockdowns have performed better economically. So, the, and the distribution of that impact, whether you're seriously locked down, the, the income groups that suffer the most from that are the lowest income groups. The if the less severe lockdowns, they do better. But the question then is, how did, what's the incidence of the disease? So there's, there's clearly a trade-off. It's a very uncomfortable conversation publicly, but there's clearly a trade-off uh, in, in those two things. From a housing perspective, 
housing always does better where jobs do better. It's the, I mean, I make sort of a, a, a dark joke about the 2007 to 2009 downturn. One of the things that we learned was if you're going to lend money to someone and give them 30 years to pay it back, it's a really good thing if they have a job. Um, so <laughs> housing, housing always performs better where jobs and incomes are growing. So there is that correlation between the impact of public policy relative to the virus and what's going on in the housing space. I was just gonna say that one thing to note in, in this uh, downturn, the rental space has actually been impacted in very different ways than the rental space was in the 2007 to nine time period. Renting actually did very well in the 2007 to nine. In Fannie Mae, our multifamily business never lost any money in that, in that very severe downturn. This time, however, that discretionary spending falls on workers who are hourly wage workers and the homeownership rate in the leisure and hospitality category of hourly wage earners is only 43%. So it's, whereas the national average is about 65%. So that's why you're hearing all the discussion about eviction moratoria is because it's been much more heavily impactful on the rental population. And specifically in multifamily or across the board? More so in multifamily. Um, it is, and we've had many conversations with uh, investors and others uh, in your area about single family rentals, uh, which there are many households that own two, three, four, five uh, rental properties as a supplement to their other income. The, the renters in that space have a much more even performance across cycles. So it's in the, in the apartment uh, space that there are, uh, is more volatility. So the single family rental space, uh, it has performed quite well uh, during this time period. Absolutely, I mean, we did a survey with our members at Real Wealth and found that they were actually having a higher collection rate than normal and, uh, and even stronger applications. But we're, you know, we're focused on the growth markets and uh, where the demographics are going. The people who own property in California were definitely having a harder time, especially if they were self-managing and couldn't really keep up with all the regulations. Right, right. So in that case, uh, do you see an opportunity for investors to be buying some distressed multi multifamily? The, um, the, the, the performance to date has been pretty good uh, in, the, in the multifamily space. There will probably be some, um, perhaps in the five to 50 category, uh, that, that might, you know, some of the, the mid-size uh, apartment buildings, uh, there's uh, some evidence. The, um, the, there's a, a little story in the high quality, uh, that is the A quality properties, that is the higher income rentals, which ties out to ownership. So we're, we watch things like lease renewals and, and uh, rent payments on time to try to keep uh, monitoring on uh, quality. One of the things that we saw is that rents in the A category have actually declined more than rents in the B and C space. So why would that be the case? So if you are a renter in an A property, you probably have the income to buy a house. Mm. And you may decide, I was going to buy this house three years from now, but I want to get away from this virus. So I'm going to buy it now. 
Mm -hmm. Remember the chart I was talking about earlier that showed the uptick in the move from dense to less dense geographies. So if you're one of those A renters, now you move out, buy a house, you don't stay in the A rental renter pool. If more than one of you in a property moves out, now there's going to be discounts offered to get lease renewals up. Well, if you are an A property a renter in a different property and you see discounts at that one, you still want to stay in that area, you let yours expire and you, t you put a new lease in this other building. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a musical chairs issue that took place that was derivative of the flight away from the virus that impacted uh, returns in the higher uh, quality properties in some markets, not everywhere, but in some markets. So the question is how fast the, the uh, value is restored. Well, there've been a very long march of apartment rents rising uh, for many years uh, since the early 2000s. It's tipped down the last uh, uh, the last few quarters, but it's hard to say that that will revert won't reverse itself if the virus gets under control. It really comes back to the virus and the vaccines. Sure. Okay. So just a couple last questions. Do you see is is there any chance that uh, that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac would increase the number of uh, loans, investor loans that an, an individual can have. I know the limit is 10 now. Do you see that changing? Actually, the, the regulator has placed restrictions on that and the, the uh, change in the SPSA uh, uh, agreement with uh, Treasury also has uh, some restrictions on that. So and unless those restrictions are uh, revised at some point, uh, it, that's highly unlikely. So, but it will probably stick with 10 or? That, well, the, the way the SPSA agreement uh, is stated, it is a percentage uh, measure as opposed to a number, but it will be constrained below the 10 probably. Wow. Uh, so and then- I can get you some, I'll send you some details on that. Uh, okay, all right, wow. Uh, and then for multifamily lending, or, um, that you don't see changes there. There are um, uh, uh, there are some changes that have been made in the requirements of the distribution of credits that we offer. I don't have the details right in my head at the moment, but I'll I'll be happy to send those to you as well. Okay, great. We'll put it in the show notes. And finally, you know, we have a single family fund. We you know, do what the, the big guys do, but we do it on a smaller level. Uh, will there be more liquidity for single family rental funds or not? <laughs> well, there's a proposal in the, in the, it's not a formal proposal yet, but the, there's discussion of the Biden administration having another stimulus plan in which they would address single, single family rental owners and tenants. So what the exact dimensions of that are, they are paying attention to that as an important segment. Uh, so I would say uh, uh, keep tuned mm -hmm. to see when a formal proposal comes, what it will contain on that front, but it is something that they're thinking about. And and there's still talk of the $15,000 tax credit for first-time home buyers. Is that still off? Yeah, it's a, there's discussion of it, but like I say, there's no formal proposal out there yet. So it's uh, these are things that they are uh, I guess, uh, testing in the marketplace of ideas to see what kind of a response they get. 
Sure. So it sounds like potentially more demand, even more demand. Right. Well, that's you. right. That's a demand side factor, right? It, it's not, it would have to be a, some sort of a subsidy to builders to increase the, the supply side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Well, Doug Duncan, it's always a pleasure to have you here on The Real Well Show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Good, great to be back and uh, good luck to you. Stay healthy. Thank you. And we'll continue to do so here on The Real Wealth Show because it is our mission to raise wealth consciousness. These are things we don't learn in school, so we got to learn it on podcasts. It is our goal to help as many people as we can create real wealth, which we define as having both the time and the money to live life on your terms with the people that you want to spend that time with. You can find out more. There are over 500 webinars on our website all about tax benefits and asset protection and which markets are best to invest in is free to access at realwealthshow.com. I'm Kathy Fetke and thanks so much for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. We'll see you next time.